Hello and welcome to the Merseyways podcast. I'm Sarah and I'm part of Liverpool City Council's communications team. Recent news reports have revealed that health experts have seen a drastic rise in the number of young people with eating disorders, with leading specialist charity BEAT seeing an 81% increase in calls to its helpline since March 2020. Today, I'm chatting to Ashley Stamper, who spent years fighting to gain control of her body and mind while being in the grip of an all-consuming eating disorder. She openly talks about her experiences, how getting on a road to recovery is possible, and how she now finds herself in a position to be able to help others. Hi Ashley, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you very much. Um, Thank you for joining us today. Just to give our listeners a little bit of background of why you are joining us on the Merseyways podcast, um, you work for Liverpool City Council and wrote a really powerful and thought-provoking blog about your experience of having an eating disorder which really resonated with so many staff and we got a huge um huge feedback to that so we thought it'd be really good to bring it to this podcast um, and bring it to a wider audience um because we just think it would be really helpful for people to hear firsthand that make they're not alone and other people have been going through similar things um and what that path to recovery could potentially look like um so if you don't mind we'll go back to the start of your journey please and just if you could tell us when you started to notice that maybe you did have a bit of a, an issue with food and was it a food thing or was it a body image thing if you could tell us that i think it didn't it didn't actually start I don't think I started to panic about it or notice any changes in myself until I was about 18 but when I was in secondary school thinking back now now that I've uh, recovered and everything's fine there was definitely things that I was paying more attention to than was normal but at the time because I was 11 and there was I wasn't really talking to anyone about it because I don't even think it was much of a thing back when I was 11 12 from what I can remember I just thought that that was normal teenage girl behavior to be really hyper aware of what you look like and I remember being in a class and there was girls sat in front of me and they were absolutely tiny they were so skinny and I wasn't big but I wasn't really really skinny I was probably like a size 10 which is completely normal for an 11 to 12 year old girl um and they were all sat around the table going oh look at my belly rolls look at my belly rolls and pulling the tops up and there was nothing there. So when I was watching them do that, and I, I had, it was the first time I'd heard the term belly rolls anyway, and that's always stuck with me and I can still see it. Then I looked at these girls and thought, well, if they think they're fat, then what am I? And I just remember from that day on, I was just completely obsessed with these belly rolls that I had. And I remember standing in front of the mirror for, for ages, getting really upset, even trying to like, I would grab myself and get really upset and cry and scream because I just didn't want I felt disgusting I didn't even want to be around myself but again because no one was really talking about it I just thought that was normal it was like oh I just don't like how I look it's fine and then when I got to 18 I don't I don't actually remember when it clicked in my head because it was it's all such a blur I just remember my mum and dad must have been really conscious because I'd gone away to uni I'd been away for a couple of months and then I'd come home and I must have completely changed how I looked. And my mum and dad were shocked, but I wasn't really talking about it. I was with I was with someone at the time, and I think I was keeping things to myself because there was things going on with that as well. And I didn't want to 
anyone to join the two things together because then that would mean the end of that relationship and I didn't want that and um, I think my mum being the uh, sneaky woman that she is caused an argument with me to get me to explode and come out with it and she I remember we were arguing in the kitchen and I just said I don't need this right now I'm not eating properly I don't feel right and I feel vile and my mum all of a sudden just went dead calm and said okay now that you've said it we're going to get you some help and it was just it was as quick as that and that was the first time I'd said it out loud in my head out loud in my head out loud that there was something wrong so I'd obviously I obviously knew that there was other things behind it I don't think it was a body issue by that point though it was definitely a control issue because of the relationship I just lost control of it and thought well I can't con control what's going on in there he's doing whatever he wants to do I'll just automatically go to food but it wasn't even a, a conscious decision it was just something that I grabbed onto and that's why I think it was related back to when I was 11 because it was always that control thing in my head that my brain just instantly went well if we can't control what he's doing we'll go back to that thing that we know we can control and that's what we're putting in. When you were growing up and through your school time was like your family life a normal sort of three meals a day or sit around a table was that so that was a big focal point then? Yeah it was we all sat and I thought we, we didn't eat we didn't didn't eat badly we just had normal things it was like normal kids dinners chicken nuggets chips and beans and takeaway once a week and to be fair now that I think in school my school wasn't far from a chippy so I used to get barbecue sauce and chips for my lunch every day so I don't even think it was a thing of that I was conscious about the food that I, that thing hadn't clicked in my head I right. just thought that my body was disgusting in comparison to the other girls so I'm quite glad that back then I hadn't even connected that to food. There was no thing of like, oh, I need to start myself back then. Um, so I think that's why when I started coming back from uni and I'd gone from eating everything on my plate to pushing food around my plate and not eating anything, my mum was like, you haven't, you've never done this. There's something wrong. There's something not right. But I wouldn't admit it until she managed to push me and push me and push me in an argument for me to explode and say yeah. it out loud. And I guess it was quite easy to hide that in university as well, isn't it? Because you're obviously not surrounded by your family. And if you're in a relationship where you're not particularly happy, then you can hide those things easier. Yeah, and especially when, you, when you're a student and you're lazy and no one's really cooking proper meals. Everyone's having super noodles or cereal and everything. There wasn't a lot of people going, oh, you're not, you're not cooking a lasagna from scratch. Like, why, why are you not eating properly? Like, if I, if I was taking a pot noodle up to my room at three or four o'clock in the afternoon, that was completely normal and no one asked any questions. And it was, my mum, I didn't do a lot of cooking at home, so it's not as if I'd gone from being able to cook to doing nothing. I think that, not that it didn't help, but that gave me an excuse not to eat because it was like, well, I don't know how to anyway, so I may as well have a packet of crisp. So that didn't help. No, no. You describe in the when you write about it in your blog, you describe it as sneaky and tricky, which I thought was a really interesting way. What does that mean to you? Why would you say it's sneaky? Because I think it it's so subliminal, and it's because for me it was a control issue, and it wasn't so much about in the way the media portrays it as eating disorders about girls wanting to be skinny. So from this day on, click my fingers, I'm not eating no more it's not it's not like that or it wasn't like that for me and for the majority of people I've spoke to it's never been like that it can just be that it's like you might be upset about something one day and just think I, I haven't got an appetite I'm not eating my lunch and then that appetite goes and you don't you only have breakfast and tea for about a week 
so then you've cut out one meal already and it's just become part of your routine you haven't even noticed and then your brain subliminally takes comfort in the fact that oh well the pain of whatever I'm feeling from a b and c I now can't feel that because I'm starving so and then because you've only missed one meal eventually that doesn't it's not enough so then you you need that feeling of hunger by missing another meal because it's you've got used to just not eating lunch and I said I say it's sneaky because you don't actually realize that it's happening until all of a sudden you're only eating a bowl of cereal a day to just constantly have that feeling of hunger to mask everything else and then you you think oh it's happening it's too late and now that's become your security blanket then and you you can't go backwards without getting help because then you do start putting weight back on and I think that's where the body image thing comes back into it because you get so used to being so small and seeing that as a success of oh I'm tiny now it's working I'm, I'm in control of this this is this is my safe zone I'm, I'm really skinny and I did this and this is what I'm in control of that's why people tend to think that it's a vanity thing because it, the people are putting the weight back on and they think, oh, she just doesn't want to get fat. It's not that. It's as soon as you start to see that you're putting that weight back on, it's the, it's the lack of control again. It's, oh no, I've gone up a, a, a size in my jeans. I'm losing control. I need to cut back again. I need that feeling of hunger. So that's why I think it's sneaky. It's just, you don't realize it's there until it's too late. Did you get to the point of just having a bowl of cereal a day? Is that where you were? It was sometimes they used to have a bowl of cereal in the morning and I remember and then nothing and then maybe a packet of crisp or this is really strange or even sometimes I'd just get like a like a knife of butter and that would be all I'd have for me tea and that would be it or if I knew I was meeting friends at university and I'd have to eat lunch in front of them because I didn't know I wouldn't have anything for me breakfast I'd have a sandwich for me lunch and then nothing for me tea um a friend was coming over for a takeaway and again I felt like I couldn't say no so I didn't eat anything all day until she was coming around to make up for the calories for the Chinese that we were having that night um so yeah it was it, it got to the point where I was hardly eating anything and that that made it hard to go home because I knew my mum was going to put four meals in front of me and I couldn't get away with it because it's not like it was in uni where I could skip meals. She was around me all the time. So she'd be like, actually, it's one o'clock. I haven't seen you eat all day. What are you doing? And I'd have to say, oh, well, I'm not hungry. Or, but she, you, your mum knows, doesn't she? She can tell. She can tell that something's not right. Um, Did your friends know in uni? Do you think they knew? Um, I didn't have, this sounds, it starts getting a bit soft story now. I didn't have that many friends because of the situation I put myself in. I had a couple that absolutely knew what was going on and she would always try and get me involved in group outings or keep me around people. But, but because of the situation I put myself in and the feelings of feeling not good enough, not important enough, no one cared. I was a waste of space. I was boring. I was this, I was that. I spent a lot of time in my bedroom. I didn't speak. To, I didn't form those friendship groups. So the only time I was really seeing anyone was in lectures. I did drama, so I was always around a big group of girls in classes. So it was nice to have that that um, interaction with, with those girls. And I remember um, something had happened in my relationship that had really upset me one day. And I had, I had no one to talk to. And I just remember breaking down in this lesson and just getting really upset and telling them about what had happened and what had happened with my food and everything. And they were... It was the first time I'd actually sat with a group of girls in so long that it made me really emotional because it was 
I just completely cut myself off. It had just made me completely cut myself off from everyone. It just tells you that you're not important. No one matters. It doesn't matter whether you don't eat because no one cares about you. And it was, I think if I'd have allowed myself to get that friendship group, it might not have got that control over me. I might've been able to kick it a little bit faster, but it just got hold, hold of me too quick. And I didn't really have that friendship group. So that's why it went on for the whole time in the university because I didn't, I didn't allow myself to put that blocker in the way of it too uh, mm. quick enough. A lot of people do describe it as a voice, don't they? That's talking to them and telling them what to, to eat or what to not eat. That mm. must just be all consuming all the time and really hard <laughs> to live with that. Yeah, it's still with me now. It's not as it's not near enough as bad, and it it doesn't it doesn't come up as much now. But it definitely, if I'm having a bad day, I can. The only way I can describe it is I can feel every part of my body all the time. So if I've got a pair of baggy, like I've got a baggy dress on now, I'm feeling fine now. But if I had this on when I had a bad day, I, all I could hear in my leg in my head was your legs are touching, your legs are touching, fat legs, fat legs, fat legs, all the time, all day. Or if I'm wearing a tight pair of pants and it's digging into my hips, fat hips, fat hips, fat hips. And it's just, it's trying to get me to control that food again. But again, I say that like, and I don't want people to think that it's me saying you're fat, you're horrible. It's not about that. It's just that voice in my head that's trying to control what I'm eating again, because it's trying to get me back into that place of this is your happy zone. You can control this and you know you can regardless of everything else going on around you. But it, it, it is absolutely there all the time. And you go through phases. There was a phase where I'm fine now, but I could never walk past myself naked in the mirror okay. for a long, long time. Because if, if I caught wind of something that I thought mm, that looks horrible, it would it'd be all I could think about all day and it would ruin my day. And I think that's the body dysmorphia part of it. It's not even an issue. Like it could be a little bit of cellulite on the back of my legs, which is completely normal. And every, it's like 99% of women have cellulite or something like that, isn't it? So it's, a, it's a completely normal thing. But my head goes, oh, you've got cellulite. You've lost, you've lost control of that now. And I can't stop thinking about it for days. And my poor husband then has to pick me up for about a week. But it's, it, I'm, I'm a lot better in lockdown than I thought I was going to be. A oh, lot, lot better. Can we just go back to when your mum sort of outed you, I guess, for want of a better phrase, what were the next steps then from that point? She um, she phoned the GP straight away. I think, as far as I can remember, she phoned the GP and she said, right, we're getting your appointment. She said, I'm sure she said something like, I wasn't doing it until you said it to me because I knew you wouldn't go. Um, so she, she phoned it for me to make sure that the appointment was booked. And we went to the GP. He weighed me there and then and he said if I was a couple of pounds lighter I'd be going to hospital there and then he said it's not quite low enough for you to go but there's definitely something wrong so then I got put on a waiting list for therapy and I was quite lucky I don't think I was waiting very long I think a month or so but then again this was it this was like 10 years ago 11 years ago so I don't know whether the 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 line would have been as as long as it is now so I wasn't waiting too long before I was in therapy and then that was that was once a week for about a year, year and a half, I think. And were those sessions useful? I imagine they would be really hard at first to go to and have to open up about what you've been experiencing. Yeah, it, it was hard, hard at first because I think when you've not done something like that before and you're unwilling to let go of what's going on in your head, you're quite, not aggressive, but you put a front up at first. It's like, I don't need to be here. 
I know what I'm doing. I'm in control of it. So this poor woman had to like talk me around and be like, no, it's not normal that you watch exactly what you eat all day at the age of 18. And it's not normal that you're under eating. And eventually when I started talking about it, it did, it did get easier. And I'm so glad that she made me do the food diaries. They were completely, you can't put a price on how, how useful they are when you're stuck in your head and your head saying you've had about 20,000 calories today when you've had, when you've had a cereal or a tiny little chocolate bar or a banana or something. It, it's so useful to be able to write it down because then you can look at it and really take in how much you've actually ate. And I, I think that was a real turning point for me because that was when it started to take in my head. Oh, maybe this isn't right. Maybe the voice isn't telling me the truth. If there's anyone listening who is going through something similar with someone they love or someone they're friends with, what advice would you give to them? Is there like, is there like do's and don'ts of definitely don't say this, but do maybe do say this? There's no, there's no right way of saying anything about how they look. So if you're going to try and build them up and give them any confidence, give them compliments on things that aren't related to how they look tell them how loved they are, tell them how smart they are, tell them how good they are, whatever they're passionate about. Uh, Just don't mention their appearance because if you say, oh, you're looking a bit unwell, I used to take that as a compliment because it was like, oh, what I'm doing is working. Or if you say, oh, you're looking healthy. Unfortunately, the word healthy can mean you're you're looking good, which in someone's head might go, I don't want to look good because then that means I'm I'm not in control of it. So just don't, don't mention their appearance at all. Don't pet, just imagine that you're feeding, you're feeding that voice by saying anything about how they look. You need to completely take the importance away of their appearance. It's not important in any way, shape or form. And I just say, just be there for them. Ask them how they are. Make sure that they feel important and loved and that they matter because the voice has got such a, bad way of just making you feel like you just no one cares about you and no one's bothered about you and you may as well just carry on starving yourself because no one cares and what when anyone's sorry no sorry i was just saying it and then we've gone for like the loved ones what advice would you give to someone who would be in a similar position to yourself um speak to someone when you're ready i think even though I can't remember knowing that there was something wrong, I obviously knew what, that there was something happening in my head. You know when something's going wrong and you know that that voice is in your head telling you to not eat or that your only worth is whatever you can see in the mirror. Whenever you're ready, speak to someone, whether that's your parents or a sibling or a grandparent or a friend, whoever you feel the most comfortable with. Just, re- just reach out, if, if nothing else, than to get those thoughts out of your mind and into the open air. Because as soon as you start saying these things out loud, you realise how harmful they are. When you're just saying it over and over to yourself in your head, you're not really computing what you're saying because it's staying in your system. Whereas if you say out loud, I haven't had anything, anything since four o'clock this afternoon and it's about 10 o'clock at night and that was the only meal you've had, then you're going to go, Oh, that sounds weird. That's not right. And the person that you say that to is obviously going to portray a look on the face as if they say, oh, I don't like that at all. And that's really important because if you just keep it in, that voice in your head has got complete control over you and is so persuasive in telling you that that's normal, that it's never going to change unless you start saying it out loud. And I understand how hard that is because it's so hard to admit you've got a problem, but it, 
recovery can't start until you say it out loud to someone and there is always going to be support you you're looked after you're cared for and you're loved so there is always going to be someone that's going to listen and is going to get you the help that you need when you're ready to ask for it I really don't want this to come across as a trite question but just as you were saying that is it is it similar to like if you have an alcoholic you're never free from alcoholism you're a recovering alcoholic is it the same with an eating disorder you'll never be free of that really but you'll learn to control it and okay so that is how it is yeah I don't think in my in my personal experience and anyone that I know that's had one they've always said it's never completely gone away I've just learned to tell it to shut up and leave me alone and I never thought I'd reach this point where I I eat everything in sight. My when I told my husband I was doing this, he said, "You're just going to go on and say that you're constantly shoving food into your mouth." <laughs> and I said, "Yes, that's exactly what I'm going to say." And I'm so proud to say that looking back ten years ago, when it was just a food was just something that was I had to do it because I had to put at least one thing in the in the engine a day, otherwise I, I couldn't carry on. Now, when I'm eating my breakfast, I'm already thinking about what I'm having for lunch. But it's just so important to me now to get food in. So to anyone that's listening that thinks I'll never reach that point and I hate food and it's disgusting and it's the worst thing about my life, it's not, you won't always be like that. You will learn to control it and you'll learn what, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. But you've also got to be careful that what you think is working for you isn't also another barrier. Like I thought, oh, well, I'm going to the gym five times a week. That means I'm okay. And that was just another control issue because then it went from not eating to just burning it all off constantly. So you've also got to be careful that you don't go too far the other way and make a new controlling barrier for yourself. You've just got to make sure everything's fine. The way you're talking, I am fully understanding why you are um, in your role. You're one of the council's mental health and wellbeing champions. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So that must be... I mean, what a journey to have come from where you've come, but to now to be in a position where you can help people and give them advice. That's amazing. Yeah, I just, it's so important to me. And I think I, I was the first one, as, as far as I know, unless they haven't told me, in my, a person in my family to come forward and say that I've got a problem. Um, and I, I watched how hard it was for my parents and my siblings to not understand how to deal with it. So I want to be there for people that are going through it themselves but then also my contact doesn't say my daughter my, my wife my son my grandson's going through x y and z how do I deal with it I want to be there for those people because there's nothing worse for the person suffering but also the families to feel completely helpless and not know what to do and I don't know everything about every mental health issue but I can offer advice and um, send people in the right directions to to get the help because it's just so important to look after what would be your to say to someone if they do find themselves in that situation is it go to your gp what what would your advice be immediately i would say go to your gp yes there's a long waiting list for for therapy you you can always go private but i know that can be expensive and another a lot of people can't afford it and it is really bad that the waiting list is so long but it's so important to just get yourself on that waiting list regardless of how long it is because then you've took that step you've said i'm ready to i'm ready to recover and you need to get that, that in itself might be good for you because you're admitting it and you're saying to that voice, I'm on my way to recovery. You don't control me anymore. I know that this is wrong and keep talking to people. And even before you go to your therapy, start doing food diaries because they're going to tell you to do it anyway. And it's, it's so invaluable that if you just start doing it now, you're already going to start those clogs working in your head. 
and yeah just go to your gp first speak to a family member or if if you don't want to speak to a family member just go straight to your gp it, they'll get you on the right track straight away okay. and it's great to hear that in these very strange lockdown times that we're all currently living in that you're you know you're you're working with it you're working through it it's not put a new obstacle in your recovery yeah. path i thought that it, when we went into lockdown my first thought was i can't go to the gym what am i going to do i'm just immediately going to go backwards and but part of the reason I think part of my struggle at the time was my gym I have to go on the motorway to get to so part of my guilt and part of my the voice in my head was you can't be bothered going on the motorway for half an hour to go to the gym how dare you get on the motorway and go to the gym and then I'd feel crap then because I hadn't been bothered to get up and go whereas now because I'm at home I've got the garden we've got the garage where I can go and do exercise within my schedule it's so much more relaxed because I can just get up and go and do it. And I know I'm lucky to have that space to do it. And not everyone has got that space, but I don't know for me having that relaxed, it can fit in on my half an hour lunch or it can fit in for 20 minutes after work. It's just took that pressure off me. It just feels a lot more relaxed and it, I'm happier now in, in myself and I'm more in control of it now than I was out of lockdown, which is very interesting. And I didn't think it would be that way, but I made up that, <laughs> that it has gone that way. Yeah, me too. It sounds brilliant. So thank you so much for sharing your story today. I'm, I'm positive that it will have helped people who are listening. Um, and I wish you all the luck for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening today. We hope that you found it helpful. And if you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, please follow Ashley's advice and seek out help. If you want to get in touch with the Mersey Waves team or maybe have an idea for a future podcast, why not drop us an email to hello at merseywaves.co.uk.